Um, I've had a message, a resurrection message, developing for some time. And in fact, I wrote it in my typical format uh, with the slides and all that. And I was considering preaching that one this morning. Uh, but I decided against it. And I'm just going to, as I have done for the last several weeks, um, preach a little bit more extemporaneously uh, as it relates to the same topic. And of course, we are on the resurrection. And, and over the past six to eight months, the Lord has bubbled something up as it relates to the resurrection um, that I perhaps had not uh, appreciated as much as uh, I do today as it relates to one of the reasons, the, the, the significances of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, uh, as it relates to the resurrection in Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 8, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not, fear not ye, excuse me, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly. And tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him, lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulchre with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples word. So we have here the resurrection. And within the, the account of the resurrection, naturally, we find that Jesus, three days prior, had given his life. He had died upon the cross. And as he had died upon the cross, he declared those words, It is finished. The finished work of Jesus Christ, we call it. The work that was finished on the cross was him being the propitiation for our sins. That word meaning covering, atonement. He is the propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction of, God, of God's wrath against our sin. And not for ours only, First John 2, 2 tells us, but also for the sins of of the entire world. And so we see that Jesus finished this work, that the wrath of God was poured out on him. As 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 21 tells us, He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So we are made the righteousness of God through a finish, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, through Jesus dying on the cross, shedding his blood, for as the scriptures tell us, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. We know why this was necessary. That verse just said it, because we are sinners. As you sit there today in whatever forum, stand, walk, whatever it might be, you are a sinner. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says that I have sinned and you have sinned and that because we have sinned, we are separated in fellowship from God because God is holy and a holy God cannot have fellowship with sinful men. If God was in fellowship with sinful men, then he himself would be made unholy. He could not have that fellowship. And so the scriptures tell us that there's a separation between God and man because of man's sin. And that nature of that sin and the reality that man is an eternal being brings about a circumstance whereby should we die in our sin, we, as eternal beings, cannot spend that eternity with the Lord in fellowship and so much must rather spend eternity separated from God. And the Bible tells us that that eternal separation is also a place 
prepared for the devil and his angels, a place of eternal conscious torment called the lake of fire. And so there is this place, the lake of fire, and then there is this abode of God. Oftentimes we call it heaven. And the abode of God is the place where those who are right fellowship with God. And the uh, abode of, of the eternal abode of those who cannot be in fellowship with God because they are sinners is the lake of fire. Well, here's the problem. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That means there's not one man. That means there's not one woman who will step into eternity in their own right and enter into the abode of God. They must all enter into the eternal place of, of conscious torment called the lake of fire because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But God so loved the world, the scriptures tell us, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So the Bible tells us that God the Father sent His Son, Jesus Christ, God in flesh. And this man, Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life. And at the end of that perfect life, never once having sinned, never once having fallen out of fellowship of the Father, He doing what no man else could ever do. The Bible tells us that He submitted Himself to the hatred of evil men. And they beat him, and they whipped him, and they tortured him, and then finally they put him upon a instrument of torture and death called the cross. And as he hung on that cross, a cruel death, it was there that the scriptures tell us that the Father made him the Son to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. It was there that Jesus took upon Himself your sin and my sin, that, that God took all of the wrath for your sin and poured it out on Jesus. Jesus bearing the price, paying the price for our sin, doing so knowing that you and I could not pay it ourselves. There's no amount of good works you can do that can undo the bad works you've done. There's no amount of money you can spend there's no amount of time in church. There's no amount of external rituals, no baptism, no amount of praying that can make you right with God because you're already guilty. But Jesus, through his finished work on the cross, did for you what you could not do for yourself. He bore the wrath. He paid the price, thus opening the way for you and I to be saved, not through our own works, not through our own righteousness, not through our own payment for our own sin, but through Christ's payment for my sin, through Christ's atonement for my sin. Christ shed his blood for my sin. So that is John 3, 18 said, he that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. So that all those who will having heard that Jesus died on the cross, recognizing that they cannot save themselves, that they are sinners, that they are on their way to the eternal place of conscious torment called the lake of fire, but that Jesus paid the price so that you would not have to go to the lake of fire and will place your full faith and trust in Jesus' work on the cross to save you from your sins, you will be saved. But of course we know that Jesus' work did not end at the cross. If I could go find Jesus' bones and worship at Jesus' 
uh, grave, his tomb, and it is a tomb that is occupied by him, then, then he can't do for me what he said he would do for me. He cannot give me eternal life if he is in death. He has no power over sin and death and hell if he is not risen from the dead. And so the Bible tells us that on that third day, as those women approached the tomb, a great earthquake, the angel of the Lord descending from heaven, rolling back the stone, saying, He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And we find that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is risen from the dead. And today I want to talk about the significance of that resurrection. Now, this is uh, not necessarily, as with many of the messages over the last several weeks, forging new ground. But it is something that I want to, to present to you, leading you to a, a th three different significances of the resurrection. The third one being the one that the Lord has really laid upon my heart over these last several months. Why? Why is it that the resurrection is significant? Well, the first reason why we read there in Matthew 28 just a few moments ago. The angel said this to the, to the women that had approached the tomb that day in verse 6. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. He is risen as he said. It is not insignificant that Jesus told everyone that he was going to raise from the dead. We see any number of resurrections throughout the Bible. We see Elijah, we see Elisha uh, bring about through great, their, their miraculous powers, prophets of the living God, uh, resurrections from the dead, raising people from the dead. We see Jesus within his earthly ministry raise several people from the dead. We actually even find that as Jesus ra raised from the dead, that some of the graves in Jerusalem were opened and saints of old were walking around the city. And so the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is not in itself exclusive, but none of those other people, not one of those other people, and no other human in the history of history has ever said they were going to rise from the dead while they were alive and then did rise from the dead. In John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, Jesus says, uh, the Jews begin, says, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. Verse 22, When therefore he was risen from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So Jesus there uh, in John chapter 2, very early in the book of John, we find a record of him announcing that he would rise from the dead in somewhat of a, of a, of a metaphorical way, in somewhat of an illusionary way. Uh, but he was significantly more direct throughout his ministry in this regard as well. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, Jesus said this, from that time forth, or the scriptures tell us, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be risen again the third day. And after that, Peter rebukes Jesus and, and uh, we, we see that element of Peter's rebuke and then Jesus' rebuke of um, Peter and, and 
of Satan at that time. Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. So Jesus predicted and, and, and promised his resurrection there as well in Matthew chapter 17. We see it in Matthew 20, uh, verses 17 through 19 as well, which tells us this. And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and he shall deliver and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. Uh, so we see these three instances, and not including the one that we find in John 2, and then many of these instances being repeated through the accounts of Mark and of Luke as it relates directly to Jesus uh, uh, promising his own resurrection. So if Jesus had not risen from the dead, these things we would know. Number one, Jesus is a liar. And if Jesus is a liar, he is not God because God cannot lie. God is truth. He is truth in himself. He is the essence of truth. God defines truth. If Jesus had lied, then Jesus is not, is not God because he, he lied. He, he is not truth. And so we know that Jesus is God because he raised from the dead. Thus he told the truth. Thus he, he spoke of his own resurrection and it came to pass. And so the significance first of the resurrection is that Jesus said he would rise from the dead. Now, and, and do take note, this sets Jesus apart. This sets Jesus apart from any other man, any other prophet, any other truth claim, any other truth leader that he said and he did rise from the dead. Another significance, as we have thought through these things, no doubt on many occasions, another significance of this resurrection is that it is our hope. It is our hope. It is our hope of the life that is to come. It is our hope of the life that is right now. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, in the little beginning um, video that I played there of my family singing, I quoted from 1 Corinthians 15. It is a great passage on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verses 1 through 8, the Bible says this, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. For I delivered unto you, oh, excuse me, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, and then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. So we find here in this testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And then Paul expounds upon the number of people that were eyewitnesses to his resurrection. These are not those who were necessarily eyewitnesses to his crucifixion. Not, not necessarily those who went to the tomb and saw the tomb empty. But these people, the 500 at one time, Cephas, who is Peter, the 12, these people are people who saw the risen Lord, not just saw an empty tomb, 
not just saw him taken off the cross, not just saw him die. These are those who saw him alive after his crucifixion. These are those who heard him speak. These are those who interacted with the risen Lord. Hundreds and hundreds of people, eyewitnesses to the reality of this resurrection. We continue then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain and your faith is also vain. So here is our hope. Our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is not enough that Jesus died on the cross. Yes, in dying on the cross, he became the propitiation for our sins. But in rising from the dead, he conquered death. He conquered the grave. And that is essential to our salvation. It is essential to our redemption. We are not redeemed if there is nothing to redeem, if there is no power over death, if death has the final say, then at best we, we have some measure of benefit for this life. But Paul will even refute that. He goes on then. He says, Yea, verse 15, And we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up. If so, the dead not, uh, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Notice this, ye are yet in your sins, and they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. They're done. You are yet in your sins. The finished work of Jesus Christ demands the resurrection to put that divine stamp of approval, and this is our next significance after this, the divine stamp of approval upon the finished work of Jesus Christ and acceptance of that sacrifice. We'll discuss that more in just a moment. But we skip then to verse 51 of 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not, oh, excuse me, before we do that. Yep, um, that's fine. We'll, we'll just go on to 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. That's from Isaiah 25, 8. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth, giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So Jesus is, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is our hope. And first off, it is our hope for the end. It is our hope for heaven. It is our hope for salvation. It is our hope for the things that are to come. Because death is swallowed up in victory. Because if Christ is risen from the dead, then, then those that are dead in Christ are perished. They are done. They are destroyed. They are gone. But, but they are not. They are not in the lake of fire. They are not separated from God for eternity. Because Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruit of them that slept. Paul would say that if in, Christ, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. 
but Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. And so it is our hope of the life that is to come. It is the means by which we are, are ushered into our resurrected bodies because Jesus is the first fruits of that resurrection. But it's not just about the life that is to come. Throughout Scripture, Paul tells us the significance of the resurrection, not just for our heavenly home, but for the life which we now live. We uh, see that realization not just, we, we saw that realization in 1 Corinthians 15. That in 1 Corinthians 15, we, we contemplated this idea. But in, first, in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 12, we read this. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death, not speaking of water baptism there, but the baptism of the Spirit of God, that moment of conversion. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. What Paul is saying here is that the moment that we accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, that, that gospel that we spoke about at the beginning, the reception of Jesus' finished work on the cross, at that moment, the Bible says that we were buried in the likeness of Christ's death, that we were judicially killed in Christ, judicially put to death in Christ, that Christ's death was applied to our account, that Christ's death was levied upon us. But if it was just his death levied upon us, then we'd be dead. But the scriptures tell us that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. It was not just Christ's death that was imputed upon us. It was also Christ's resurrection that was imputed upon us so that we thus live in that newness of life today, anticipating the resurrection of our mortal bodies unto an incorruptible body tomorrow. And so the very hope that we have in this life to conquer sin, the very hope that we have in this life to overcome, the very hope that we have in this life to bring about within these mortal sinful bodies any measure of faith, any measure of righteousness is found through the finished work, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross. So he continues in verse 5, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, because we have followed him into death, we have accepted Christ and, and believed on his death, we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man, our sin nature, is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. So Jesus Christ, his finished work, his resurrection on the cross, brings about in us not only the hope of the resurrection one day when, we, when our bodies are in the grave and we are, we are uh, um, ushered into eternity, 
but it also forms the very foundation of our capacity in this life to overcome sin. Not through ourselves, but through Christ in us. It is the power that breaks the chains of sin that allows us to recognize that our, body, our, our mortal bodies, our sin nature, the old man, as it's called here, was crucified, was put to death, and we have been raised to walk in newness of life, given of God's Spirit, given a spiritual resurrection. The final passage before we move on to this third significance and the one that I, I would truly like us to consider today, Colossians chapter 3. Paul says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. Paul once again refers to the resurrection here as the basis by which we are able to do the thing that we would desire to do, that, would, that God would call us unto do. That if we be risen with Christ, that if we are partakers, not just of Christ's death, but of Christ's resurrection, then we are called to set our affection on the things of that life that is to come, on the things of the resurrected life. Recognizing, believing that as we are dead and our life is hid with Christ in God, that when Christ shall appear, we will appear with him in glory. Therefore, we live in the reality of the life that has been purchased for us. We live in the reality of the resurrection that has been applied unto us. And so the significance of the resurrection, the first significance of the resurrection is that Jesus said he would rise from the grave. And so in, in raising from the dead, he was proven true. He, first time in, in the history of history, predicted his own resurrection. He promised it. He didn't just promise that it would happen, but he told them the day it would happen, the third day. He rose on the third day, proving that he is true, that he is God, that the things he said are true. Second, the significance of the resurrection for we who are in Christ is not just that one day after we die, we will raise again to be with him, though it is there. That is uh, the, the promise that death has no sting, that the grave has no victory, that as the world scrambles around in mortal fear of death right now, you and I don't have to fear death. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we're reckless. That doesn't mean we're foolish. But death, death is inevitable. But for we who are in Christ, death is not the eternal separation as death would imply, death is the gateway into eternal life. Death is ushering us into something far more real than anything we've ever experienced in this world. Death is not the end. Death is, in fact, only the beginning. But it is also our hope for this life. It is the only hope that we have to be able to bring about in our lives a measure of, of, of God's righteousness. It is the means by which, it is the power through which we are able to mortify our old man and live in the power of the new man. 
it is the the evidence of this new life it is the power to reach out to others everything that we would seek to do as believers is empowered through the resurrection of Jesus Christ the third and final significance of the resurrection I want to talk about today is and we, we, we touched on it just briefly in our first point, is just how important the resurrection is to validating not just that Jesus is God, but to validating that God accepted what Jesus did for us. So we say, okay, um, Jesus died on the cross. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended unto the Father. Jesus... Jesus' resurrection gives us hope for life to come. Jesus' resurrection gives us hope and power in this life as well. Okay, all that's well and good, but how do we know? Uh, how do we know that that, that that is the standard? How do we know that, that, that Jesus is the standard? What, what about all the other truth claims? Why, why can't any of the other truth claims out there? Why can't um, the Buddha, or why can't Muhammad, or why can't any of these other competing truth claims? Why can't uh, Joseph Smith's complete competing truth claims? Uh, why aren't those valid, but Jesus's is? And once again, there is a real root here in the resurrection, in the resurrection itself. Well, pastor, how's that possible? As you said earlier, other people have risen from the dead. He's not the only one to rise from the dead. So how is it? Is it just because he's the only one to have predicted these things? Well, well here's the thing. Yes, in part. See, Jesus made dramatic and exclusionary truth claims, did he not? In John chapter 4, 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. See, Jesus made this unique truth claim that said that the only way anyone can get to the Father is through Jesus Christ. Through, by, by means of this tru truth claim, as, a, as a, a consequence of this truth claim, there is a reality that faces every man that they must do something with Jesus Christ in order to have a relationship with God. See, there are any number of religions today that seek unto and claim unto relationships with God. Whether that be, as we've already discussed, the Orthodox Jew and his relationship with God through the Torah, or whether that be the Jehovah's Witness and the Latter-day Saints' relationship uh, with God, uh, Jehovah's Witness through Jehovah, um, Latter-day Saints through their, their prophets, whether it be uh, Islam and their relationship with God through the Quran and Muhammad, whether it be um, the Buddha and, or ancestor worship, or even the, the very large and growing, especially among young people, spiritual but not religious crowd. All of those who um, say, well, I believe in a God, I believe in a higher power, I believe in, in, in some God in the ether, but I, I don't know who he is, but I know he loves me and I know he accepts me and that's enough for me and it's fine. But here's the thing, what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, is that no man cometh unto the Father but by him. Jesus called himself in John the door to the sheep that nobody can come into the fold with, unless they go through the door, and everyone who tries to go outside of the door is a thief and a robber. We find Jesus' warning in Matthew chapter 7 that 
Many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name do many wonderful works? And he will say, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And so we find that the teachings of Jesus Christ, as it relates to salvation, as it relates to heaven, as it relates to a relationship with God, were very exclusionary. And this is where Jesus' resurrection becomes so interesting. See, any number of people rose from the dead. But what we have to believe about people rising from the dead, because it's not natural, it's not normal, is that since God is sovereign, anyone who has risen from the dead in history, whether we're talking about the widow's son, whether we're talking about uh, Lazarus, whether we're talking about Jesus, that nobody has ever risen from the dead without the explicit permission of God. That makes sense, right? If God is sovereign, if God has created all things, if God has created this world to work in a certain way, that, that, that a part of the way God has created the world is that people don't rise from the dead. And yet, there have been any number of times in history where God has gone outside of the natural created order that he has brought about, and he has worked something unique, worked something unnatural, and he has done so explicitly to bring about a purpose. So when Elijah and Elisha raised the, those children from the dead, when uh, Elisha's bones were thrown into that sepulcher and, the, and, and uh, people rose from the dead, uh, when, when their, their live bodies were thrown on top of those bones, when Jesus raised Lazarus, when these things happened, there was a, a functional purpose, God, a, God's stamp of approval on the ministry of those men who raised these people from the dead. So Elisha was a prophet. Elijah was a prophet. Jesus was a prophet, priest, and king. And uh, we know this because they were able to harness the power of God to bring about these resurrections. Well, let me ask you this. If God must, as it were, approve every resurrection, and if Jesus were not who he said he was, if Jesus was not God, if Jesus was not from God, if his message was not from God, if Jesus' message was not approved, if Jesus' death on the cross did not do what Jesus claimed it would do, which is be a payment for our sins, Follow this with me. The Father never, ever, ever would have allowed him to raise from the dead. Ever. Any other person, maybe, but not a man who was lying about a message from God. Does that make sense? If Jesus was telling lies, if Jesus' death on the cross did not do what he claimed it would do as the propitiation for our sins, if Jesus was not the, the, the Word of God, as he claimed to be, as John 1 tells us, that he is the Word of God. The one definitive way that God could refute, repudiate the message of Jesus would be by never, ever, ever allowing him to rise from the dead. But Jesus did rise from the dead. See, Jesus called himself the only begotten Son of God. In Hebrews... Chapter 1, I believe. Let me get there real quick. Hebrews 1, verse 
in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, Paul is making an argument for the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And he says this, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be unto him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. So the claim made here in Hebrews is that Jesus is the only begotten son of God, that Jesus has a special and exclusive relationship with God the Father, so much so that he is greater than the angels, that he is greater than any that have come before him or any that have come after him. Thus, Jesus is worthy of authority. Thus, he should be listened to. Thus, what he did is, 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 is real, is accurate, is right. And thus, he is... Everything he said is true, which means he is the only way to God, which means there is no other way, which means his work on the cross was sufficient as a sacrifice for our sins, which means in rising from the dead, we can have eternal life. And all of that is proven by Jesus being the only begotten son of God. Now, Jesus himself called himself the only begotten son of God. We know that from John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus is saying those words in John 3, 16. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so we, we see this reality that Jesus is called, he called himself, the only begotten son. Now, why does this matter? In Psalm 2, we see a prophecy. Psalm 2 is a prophetic psalm. And in Psalm 2, the Bible says this. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. We have a contrast in these verses. We see the kings of the earth, and then we see them setting themselves against God and God's anointed. That word, God's Messiah. Okay? So we have God and his Messiah, and we have the kings of the earth. And they, the, the kings of the earth are rebelling against God and against his Messiah. He that sitteth in the heavens, verse 4, shall laugh, and the Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them, the kings, in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet I, God says, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. So here's the contrast. All the kings of the earth are attempting to, to fight against God and God's king, God's anointed. And God says, they're, they're nothing to me. I will laugh. I will set my king upon the holy hill in Zion. I will declare the decree, verse 7. Here it is. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. And so we see that the Lord's anointed, this anointed of the Lord, this king that the Lord has cho chosen, is called God's son. And that there was a particular day in which God's son was begotten where he took on this title, where he became God's son. Now, Jesus went throughout the ministry being called the only begotten son of God. Modern translations will, will change only begotten to one and only. It's a very bad change. Jesus is the begotten son of God. Modern translations have changed it for a specific reason. And the reason is because they don't want to give the impression that Jesus is a created being. The Jehovah's Witness will take only begotten and say, see, Jesus was created. The Mormons will take only begotten and say, see, Jesus is created. He was begotten. Therefore, he is a created being. Therefore, he cannot be God because God is eternal. Well, Jesus refuted that on, uh, in his life. But that's also not at all what it means that Jesus was the only begotten son of God. 
The Bible tells us that there was a specific day when, when the Son of God was begotten. And the scriptures also tell us what day that is. So Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that the fact that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God makes him greater than the angels because he was begotten. Well, the angels were created too, but they weren't begotten. Psalm 2 prophesies of a day when the Son, when the Lord's anointed would be begotten. What day was that? Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, Paul is preaching in Antioch of Pisidia. He is reasoning with the Jewish leaders there as it relates to Jesus Christ. And the Bible says in verse 26, Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. For they, they that dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, that was after he died, and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead, and he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declared unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that Psalm 2, the promise that there was a day when the Son would be begotten, was fulfilled when God raised Jesus from the dead. What does this mean? Why is this significant? What this means is that Jesus being the only begotten Son. Now you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Pastor, Jesus called himself the only begotten Son while he was still living. How could he call himself that if he had not yet died and it was when he rose from the dead that he became the only begotten Son of God? Well, because Revelation tells us that Jesus is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So there is a point in history where Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again about 2,000 years ago. But, but, God is not bound by history. God knew from the very moment that, that all of the creation took place what would happen. God had already, he, he lives in eternity future just as he lives in eternity present. God is outside of time. He sees the timeline as one big event. He can see the whole thing from beginning to end at one time. And because God is outside of time, he can look at that point 2,000 years ago and say, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Therefore, he is in history, in, in eternity past, the lamb slain. Though it would not technically happen until this point in history, it was already as good as done from the very beginning of creation. So Jesus is the only begotten Son, but He technically, historically, earned that title when He rose again from the dead. And He is the only one to ever have had that title. He is the only one to have been given that title. And what that title tells us 
is that Jesus's ministry is approved. That God the Father put his stamp of approval on everything that Jesus did, put his stamp of approval on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, which tells us that everything Jesus said was true, everything Jesus taught is true, everything that Jesus did has the approval of God so that we can trust it. Thus it is that Jesus' resurrection from the dead becomes proof positive not only that Jesus is God, but it becomes proof positive that Jesus' finished work on the cross is and will be effective unto salvation, unto salvation from sin, unto salvation from hell. And it's proof positive as well that Jesus' exclusionary de declarations are valid. And to that end, Jesus Christ is the only way unto the Father. All of this proven not just by Jesus' death. Well, Jesus' death established it. Jesus' resurrection proved it. Jesus' resurrection was necessary to prove it. This is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus rise not from the dead, we are still in our sins. Why? Because his death on the cross, he may have thought he was bearing our sins, but if it doesn't have the stamp of divine approval, then he's just another guy who's attempting to do something religious. But in that Jesus rose from the dead, it is proof positive that you who are in Christ will one day step into glory. It is proof positive that you who are in Christ have been freed from the power and the chains of sin. And so it is that as we step out of this time together today, two exhortations. First, to you who are in Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is your confidence. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is your confidence that you can walk through this day and you can wake up tomorrow and you can walk through that day in victory over sin. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is your confidence that should you step from this life into the next, as we all will, that you will step into glory. That you will be redeemed through the blood of the Lamb. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the very center of that confidence. If he had not risen from the dead, then Jesus could have been right. He may not have been right. I guess we'll die and find out. But no, he rose from the dead. God allowed him to rise from the dead, even though he'd made these truth claims. God would never, ever have allowed a false prophet who said, I, this is what God says, and I will rise from the dead to prove it. God would never allow that man to rise from the dead. God allowed Jesus to rise from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he is the only begotten Son of God, proving that he is the Lord's anointed, proving that he is this one who God had promised, the king who will laugh at the heathen kings as they seek to oppose him. There's another group of people under the sound of my voice today, and these are they who have never accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. And maybe for any number of reasons, you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You say, I'll get around to it one day. Or, well, there's a lot of truth claims out there. How do I know that his is right? Or, well, I just kind of want to keep persisting in my sin. Well, there's a message here for you as well, isn't there? The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. 
The Bible tells us that there's coming a day where you will stand before a righteous judge and that nothing, nothing that you can do, nothing that you will do, no amount of effort, no amount of money, no amount of, of, of good works, no amount of personal morality will see you right before God. But there is one upon whose ministry and whose sacrifice God has approved, and that is Jesus Christ. And we know it because he rose from the dead. We know it because the tomb is empty. If the tomb were not empty, we would have no confidence. If the tomb were not empty, there would be no proof that Jesus Christ, anything that he said was worth anything or that he could do what he said he could do. But the tomb is empty. He was seen of over 500 people at one time many of whom at the time of 1 Corinthians writing were still alive to validate that account historically. And thus it is that you come to a point of decision. And thus it is you are brought to a point where you recognize that life is fragile. We've seen it over the past several weeks. Life is fragile. There is no guarantee of tomorrow. There is no guarantee of the rest of today. You could step into eternity in the next few moments. And the question is, are you prepared? Jesus was very exclusive. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Have you come to Christ so that you may get to the Father? Are you there? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? If you have not, would you do that today? Would you acknowledge to the Lord that you are a sinner, that your sin has separated you from Him, that you know this, that you believe this, that you believe with all your heart that Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins, that he bore your punishment, that he paid for your sins, that he purchased your forgiveness. Would you cry out for that forgiveness? Would you acknowledge that Jesus rose from the dead? And in doing so, the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He'll save you from your sins, he'll redeem you, and he'll give you a home in heaven. Would you make today the day that you do that? What a great thing that would be to be able to step into the family of God on this, the day that we celebrate our Savior's resurrection. And may it be that we don't just live today in the reality of this resurrection. Today is the day that we consider it. Today is the day that we focus upon it. But may it be. that the resurrection becomes the very context within which we live our lives. That every day we wake up excited to live in the power of the resurrection for today. That every day we wake up eager to tell others about the power of the resurrection in their life. And then as we step from this life into the one that is to come, confidently that we may then bask in the joy of our Lord, secured for us through the finished work of Jesus Christ through his resurrection from the dead.